With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chahat Rana says being in India right now means constantly asking yourself, when will I get COVID? It's like a circle that's closing in. You hear of a distant contact, then you hear your neighbor has COVID, then you hear a friend's parent has COVID, friend's parent has died, grandparent has died, you know, my father's colleague has died, stuff like that. So you hear these, like, it comes closer and closer to you and you wonder how long will you remain unscathed. And that's not just me, that's everyone. That's everyone these days. You've probably heard the stories about hospitals that are overfull and simultaneously discharging body after body, about the medicine that's in such short supply. Oxygen, too. If I needed oxygen in India right now, what would you tell me to do? So the first thing would be, if you're above sort of 92, if you're still in like 93, 94 range, you won't get a bed. You won't be prioritized. Chahat means if your oxygen saturation's low, it's got to be really low to get a doctor's attention. So what would happen first is you will wait till it's like 92 to start panicking uh, because, because there's nothing else to do. If it's still dipping, then you start looking for an oxygen cylinder, a concentrator, which you can install at home. Hmm. Now for that... What you do is you start messaging everyone you know. You go to Instagram, you go to Twitter. Jahat's social media feeds have been filled with these messages over the last few weeks. Friends and family tapping out desperate memos, almost always marked urgent in all caps. Have you seen these please work? Someone put information out and say, I really need this right away, and, and someone comes through for them? Yeah, it's it's worked. It's not worked. I'm sure quite a few times you, like a few hours later, you'll see a tweet saying that this person passed away, you know, nothing helped. But there are times when I think I have forwarded a lead personally that's worked or someone else has forwarded a lead to me, which I forwarded it and it has worked. Did that feel good? Like, did you feel like, oh, okay, one person's taken care of? Or I I wonder if you felt like this is just one person out of so many. Yeah, I don't think there's time to even feel good about it. You're on to the next. Uh, And you're also worried what will be the next need. Okay, I got them that one oxygen cylinder. Maybe they got that. Maybe they're fine for now. And when oxygen falls again, within a few hours, will we be able to get the next cylinder? If it falls even more, will we be able to get them a ventilator bed um, and, and an ICU? So it's... It's hard to feel hopeful. Today on the show, Jahat spent the last few weeks in and out of India's COVID wards and waiting in line with mourners who just want to put their loved ones to rest. She's going to take us inside a crisis that she says her government 
should have seen coming. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Do you remember when it felt like India had kind of dodged a bullet when it came to the coronavirus and, and what that was like? End of last year and early this year, everyone was a little more hopeful. Yeah, December, January. Yeah, December, January, especially because we would, I mean, I personally was reading news about the U.S. even and seeing the spike, I think around November, December, it was really bad. And I would say, oh, wow, like it's surprising that we're still doing okay compared to that. I mean, being in a country that does not have such healthcare resources, uh, that level of infrastructure and development, et cetera. You know, it was just surprising that we didn't reach the kind of level of apocalyptic chaos that we reached now. And for a minute, we thought maybe, I mean, at least I thought maybe that's never going to happen, at least not to this extent. So yeah, and then the messaging around where we are in terms of the pandemic and what the government sort of tried to tell people, especially when the two new vaccines were approved in India, was that, yeah, we have the vaccines, the numbers are low, and we're going to beat this. But while India's leaders were celebrating manufacturing those vaccines, they weren't doing a whole lot to convince the Indian people to get vaccinated. So far, only 9% of India's population has gotten a shot. Only 1.7% is fully vaccinated, at least according to the latest data from the University of Oxford, published in the New York Times. The numbers are low for a lot of reasons. Jahat says one of them is vaccine hesitancy, but not the same kind you'd find in the U.S. Jahat says in India, this was something completely new. We have a very good immunization program, a universal immunization program. There is faith in that system. People line up to get vaccinated. You know, so there is faith in vaccines in general, in immunization programs. What happened here is, um, at least in the earlier phases, it was frontline workers and healthcare workers who were getting vaccinated. And I think the government did not do enough in terms of communicating the science, the research that the vaccine to instill that faith in them. Because the way regulatory approvals were granted to these two vaccines, it seemed quite rushed. Hmm. Only because we wanted a make in India national vaccine as soon as possible. That's what the government wanted. So there was a worry that scientific rigor has been compromised just to show that we had these two make in India vaccines. And, you know, India has done so well. And, and there's no doubt these vaccines, the problem is not that we can't trust these vaccines or the science behind it or our scientists, etc. The problem is that we did not communicate in a way that instills faith in these vaccines. So a lot of healthcare workers in the beginning were very hesitant to get these vaccines. Well, then it's interesting, too, because the lumbers were low, of course. You had your prime minister giving a speech at Davos basically saying we're at the end of dealing with COVID in January. Yeah. And so you can kind of see how everything combines 
And a practical person might think, well, I can skip it. I don't need it. Yeah, that's something that I I heard people say as well. Like some people said, oh, I've already been infected. So why take that risk? Um, I went through this last year and it was okay. Because people were assuming they'd already had it and had developed some immunity. Yeah, which clearly is not the case. Reinfections have occurred. I mean, we don't have really good data on the rate of reinfection in India. But anecdotally, yes, we know that so many people, so many healthcare workers, frontline workers, just general people have been reinfected and have faced somewhat even more severe symptoms this time than last time, especially if they weren't vaccinated. When did you sense something was changing, cases were picking up, and it might be getting dangerous? I think by the end of February and early March, uh, there was a lot of talk about one specific state, which is Maharashtra. Uh, that's and that's where Mumbai is. Yeah, yeah, that's where Mumbai is. That's the state. Uh, Mumbai is the capital of Maharashtra. So there was a spike there, but the way the government was talking about it is that, you know, this is one state. They were isolating particular states and saying the central government, you know, the health ministry. Um, they were pointing at certain states and being like, these are problem states. They are not doing well enough. They need to do this. They need to ramp up their vaccination, ramp up their testing. So it was, it seemed like it's not a national problem. It was a very specific epidemic, localized. And this is the state's problem. But otherwise, India is doing well. Was the government giving reasons why COVID cases might be on the rise in particular places? Well, they were giving reasons, but those reasons didn't add up. So a lot of people were asking these questions, right? Like, okay, if Maharashtra is speaking, Punjab is speaking, uh, why is the rest of the country not? And there were two, three answers to it. Uh, but the main sort of answer that they always gave was COVID fatigue, which is that people are not taking precautions, etc. But that could be applied to any state. So that didn't make sense. There was some conversation about uh, mutations and a mutant sort of virus, but nothing has been done even until now. No significant research has been done to sort of trace that virus. There was a, a, a sort of mutant virus that was traced in Maharashtra and some districts of Maharashtra early on, but nothing has been done to see whether these are more infectious, more dangerous. So again, there's no conclusive sort of evidence to suggest that this might have caused a spike in Maharashtra as compared to other places. I'm thinking about the United States, and here we kind of tried to prop up a contact tracing system state by state, and some of those were more successful than others. Hmm. I wonder if in the time from when the coronavirus began, when it appeared, whether India had been able to prop up those systems so that when cases did begin to surge, there was some ability to answer the question of why. Contact tracing was something that was spoken about and, and a lot was perhaps done in the early sort of months of the pandemic, and that's during the lockdown. So perhaps between March and May, there was a lot of talk about contact tracing. But I think since then, it's just been an abandoned exercise. And you flagged, too, the fact that even as this surge was happening, you know, India, like a lot of countries, had a scientific task force on COVID-19. Yeah. But that task force wasn't meeting in the early days of this surge. 
Do we have any reasoning for why? Honestly, I'm not sure why, but from what we know is that the government's priorities were different, clearly. We were focusing more on the election rallies. Um, We were focusing on the Kumbh Mela, which is this sort of big religious gathering. And lakhs of masked crowds gathered there. And our minister spoke about how um, religion has a place above COVID-19. And if you have faith, then COVID-19 can do nothing to you. These are government officials Hmm. saying all of this. Um, So... I, I'm not so sure why they, but but this has been the trend. This has been the trend to not listen to subject area experts, to scientists. Their advice has clearly not been taken into account from the very beginning. Um, scientists already knew that cases are on the rise and predicted that something like this is on the horizon. So honestly, I, I cannot understand. I cannot fathom what stopped them from meeting and planning for this. You sound so frustrated yeah. with your own government. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am. I am. I mean, I'm beyond frustrated. I've given up hope and just seeing what I see every day, reading what I read every day. I mean, they can't even acknowledge what is happening. So, you know, thinking beyond that is just, if you can't even acknowledge there's a problem, what are you going to rectify it with? Like, what are you going to do to make sure that this problem is resolved. Why do you say that, that the government hasn't acknowledged what's happening? Give me, give me some examples of how you see that disconnect. For example, uh, in Uttar Pradesh, one of the states that has been badly hit, the chief minister spoke about how there's no shortage of oxygen, there's no issue about beds, we have everything, there's nothing to worry about, cases are actually going down now, so this is the kind of narrative that they create while on the other side, um, if someone does try to speak up, for example, there was this one person only yesterday who tweeted about getting an oxygen uh, cylinder for his grandfather who was really sick. And the government responded uh, by filing an FIR against him for spreading lies and misinformation. That's a some kind of charge, like a criminal charge? Yeah, an FIR is the first information report. So a man goes online looking for oxygen for his loved one yeah, and gets slapped with a charge. Yeah, yeah. That's what happened uh, for spreading rumors and lies. So that's been the kind of crackdown. The government does not want to talk about what the situation is on the ground. They're very wary of the international coverage that India is getting instead of trying to actually focus our energy on fixing things. Hmm. Yeah, so this this has been sort of, the efforts have been to clamp down on real narratives from the ground and reporting and instead pretend that everything's all right and everything's good. And the way they're doing it is not just through what ministers and officials are talking about and what they're saying about the situation and how they're pretending everything's okay. But also the other things they're doing is curbing testing, asking private labs to stop testing. So that, I mean, if there are no tests, then obviously numbers are going to go down. That's so reminiscent of what happened here, where when President Trump was in charge, you had him saying, well, we're doing so much more testing. That's why the numbers are going up. Yeah, but here it's, yeah, that, that's something that's been used also uh, earlier. But now it's just very explicit orders um, to curb testing, to stop private labs from taking tests and because you don't want to see the problem. 
Yeah. Yeah. And even if you do get tested, sometimes you get your results in like a week or 10 days. Until then, you've either recovered or you've died. That's what's happened. When we come back, what Chahat has seen firsthand inside India's COVID wards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Can you tell me about the the places you visited? Because I know in the last couple of weeks, you've been to hospitals and you've been to crematoriums and you've met people who are desperate. What have you seen? Yeah, there's this one incident where we went to this hospital in this district called Baruch. It's in Gujarat. It's a small town. And we went to the civil hospital there, which is a district level hospital. And there was one doctor Uh, who was taking care of a ward of 70 COVID patients, all of them on oxygen support. One doctor, one young medical student, resident doctor, along with four, five nurses. And like every 10, 15 minutes, he was being called from one bed to another. Either someone was losing oxygen, someone was gasping for breath, couldn't figure out what's happening to them. There, aren't, there weren't enough nurses, so family members were attending to patients. They were inside these wards. Hmm. There was not really a segregation between like intensive care and non-intensive care or suspected COVID and COVID patients because all of them had the same sort of clinical conditions, symptoms. All of them needed oxygen support. Uh, some of them even needed ventilation, but there was no ventilators. I think you talked about how people were adjusting their own oxygen levels because there just weren't enough staff to help them with it. Yeah, so they they basically gotten sort of used to figuring that out themselves because there were like five, six adjointed wards. If the doctor is in one of the wards, you can't really call out. Like the attendant has to go and find him. And if the, if the other patient is sicker and needs more care, then the doctor is not going to come to you. And how long can you wait, right, for a doctor or a nurse to come in? So... People just started sort of fiddling with the dial themselves. 
the thing is they might think they're doing it right but they might be messing it up as well so perhaps either they have uh, a pressure of oxygen that's too much or too low for them and that might damage their lungs even more but they're desperate they want to do something uh, you know and attendants themselves relatives they want to do something right they're seeing their loved one um their family member wife daughter son like young people like 20 people in their 20s gasping for breath right there was a father i remember uh who's just standing and crying and asking me if i can do something for them and yeah and they were asking you yeah yeah because they were trying to secure some medication uh or but asking me if there's some other hospital that they can be taken to where they can be attended to well better than this what do you even say to that i have to be honest i have to be honest i have to tell them that my role what i'm doing is to make sure that people know what's happening here uh if i had something if i had a resource i would help you but i really don't i don't and the most i can do is make sure people know what's happening and it's it's you have to be honest i, I don't know what else to be you chronicled this one moment that stood out to me because it was a quiet moment mm-hmm. a man came into the hospital they weren't able to test him for covid but he clearly had covid symptoms and he died yeah and his death was marked as a cardiac arrest and it was this very small moment that kind of reveals the entire problem yeah which is we don't even know how many covid patients there are even when they're in a hospital even when they're gasping for breath yeah that's for sure. most people are dying before they get hospital care most people are either dying in, inside their homes or in an ambulance or on the side of the road in an auto rickshaw this is where they die most of them are announced dead upon arrival i've seen that quite a bit uh, in my reporting um i mean i don't even the figures that we have the data that we have i i don't i don't even know where to begin talking about uh how fudged that data is and it's not even about being fudged it's about in this whole chaos how are they even keeping account at all of what's happening when there are no tests test results come if they, you do get tested they come like 5 10 days later sometimes so yeah we have no idea of how many people have actually died of covid we just know it's at least hundreds in one city I'm not even talking about the state like hundreds of unreported deaths you know i noticed something when i was looking at some of the covid data for india that struck me which is that some of the highest infection levels right now seem to be in west bengal and that is the state where the prime minister had been doing so much campaigning there's a an election there that's really important to him because if his party is able to secure a foothold in that state it it just unlocks a lot of potential power it's it was something people didn't think would necessarily happen it's a really diverse state that has traditionally been against his hindu first agenda and that election's still going on which some people are saying is driving the infection rate 
up. I think results are expected in May. Yeah. But it made me wonder if there was a chance here that there would be political ramifications that we would actually know about quite soon for the prime minister, given how he's dealt with the COVID crisis. I mean, I would hope so. I can genuinely sense a level of disenchantment, disillusionment with the current regime. But there are some people who are still ready to push that narrative, like, what can the government do? It's on us. What do they do? There's a virus. What can what can Modi do? But I know people who would still swear by him and his leadership. And I guess that's what this government has kind of done well, which is image-making, perception management, creating symbols out of these people in power, you know, these larger-than-life symbols. In the last week, international allies have started offering all kinds of aid to India, vaccines and, and oxygen. And I wonder if that gives you some sense that relief may be on its way. I mean, yes, of course. But I feel like this is not the worst of it. There's the cases, everything is going to rise to an extent that the amount of support we get will not catch up. So I feel like there's sadly much more devastation to see before this gets better. I mean, until April 17, our prime minister was giving, as addressing a rally in West Bengal. There was a crowd of unmasked faces cheering him on. And he spoke about how uh, amazing it is to see such a big gathering. He's never seen such a big gathering before in his life. He himself was... uh, unmasked. And this is until April 17th. That was the same day you were in a hospital in his home state. Yeah. Watching people be turned away. Yeah. It's it's a crazy, crazy image. How are you, how are you doing? Because you're there. You're in the middle of all this. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that the, the last time you were kind of out reporting, it was a, a week or two ago. Do you feel like you need to lock yourself down at this point? Uh, I I feel like staying at home doesn't help much. I mean, it's it helps me deal better if I'm kind of out reporting. But the biggest worry and concern is about the people living around you and infecting other people, you know, passing on the virus to other people while you do your job. That's always a problem, but... Locking yourself up doesn't help. Like it's sometimes, I mean, it does help. Everyone should be locking themselves up. But if I have to do my job and be on the ground reporting, then sometimes I feel like I'd rather do that than be here and be scared and be thinking about, you know, what's going to happen to my family, to my friends. How is this going to go? Till How long will I avoid this? Shahat Rana, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I hope you and your family stay safe. Yeah, I hope so too. Shahat Rana writes for The Caravan. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Carmel Dalshad, Daniel Hewitt, Davis Land, Mary Wilson, and Elena Schwartz. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. Tomorrow, be sure to stay tuned to this feed for What Next TBD. 
That's our Friday show, all about technology. Lizzie O'Leary hosts it. I will catch you back here on Monday. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.